Ed Stern, what is your favourite game? My favourite game is Half-Life. The most important thing to realise is that I'm the third or fourth fourth oldest person in the world. (laughs) So, I mean... Because I was born in 1972. Mm. And so when I... Like, computer games, just the notion that you could have one in your house or that you could have the piece of equipment that allowed you to play it was just incredibly exciting and strange. Mm. Um, And it's one thing to have a better games console, but to have the, the first console or the first bit of kit that could play a game that was so outside people's experience um uh will wheaton has you know written and spoken very wittily about this but like when he but the idea of being being a, behaving like a dick in multiplayer that's really tough to do if you're in an arcade they'll <laughs> 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 just, just chin you <laughs> um so yeah i remember when first i started seeing because multiplayer yeah that absolutely meant somebody sharing your coin and standing next to you and jogging your your elbows uh, and there's something amazing about those arcade machines. There's something about the monitors or the the, the sweetness of the the strobing effect. It's still kind of entrancing. It's really interesting to see young kids who've never seen like big, you know, playing just playing Galaxians or Space Invaders and and being entranced all over again by just how beautifully clicky the buttons are or uh, just how smooth the glass is or the the just delight of racking your fingers over the buttons. Um, Martin Amis, you know he wrote um, Martin Amis, the novelist, wrote a uh, um, a games book. I did not he, know that. No, it's called Invasion of the Space Invaders, and some of it is him writing about, you know, like the nature of the games, and he's kind of warming up his literary style. But loads of it is just hints and tips. He's totally just like the most standard games journalism kind of. Yes, trying trying to take the edge of a row. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what about your first system? How did that come about? Oh, well, that was a complete... That explains why it took me so long to get into games, because my first system was the ZX81, which was terrible. I mean, it, it was, a, in many ways, a revolutionary PC, but if I'd hung out for the Spectrum, I might have actually got a so-called PC that could play games. But trying to code in games, you know, typing them out from magazines, these, like, dozens of lines of basic, I was terrible then. I'd still be terrible at it now. That's just... You know, I'm I'm not that accurate a typist at the best of times, so it was generally playing on a, on kind of friends' machines, and one of them had an Atari, and then eventually, a couple of years later, a friend had an Amiga. Was it Atari? You know, it was an, an, an Amiga. So it was always on other people's friend, like neighbours. You know, oh, they've got a Spectrum, and I was looking at my machine, going, well, I nagged my parents to get it. I can't really admit that all of these games are terrible, <laughs> um, and and that I I can't code my own, or I can't even type them out. I can imagine that now. Imagine if there was a magazine that was like, hey, here's the, here's met, the new Metal Gear. Type it out into your PlayStation 4. <laughs> <laughs> It'll take you three years. <laughs> oh, God. Don't, don't give Kojima any ideas. Just take... <laughs> no one has uh, craft for perfection. It'll take twice as long as it does now for the wait for the Phantom Pain. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a thought. Yes, I think we should definitely go back to that. You'll be given the yeah. Here's the game, or rather, here's the recipe for the game. But you've got to type it in and make it run. <laughs> I, I and on second thought, let's keep it as it does. Ah, that's really. Good. You see, that's what it's like. That's what it was like for us back then, back in back in the medieval uh, epoch, <laughs> when it was everything was black and white and fast walking. 
I, I like things easy. I like it all easy. Just just come here, desk, put it in, go, bam. Well, that's the thing. It, it's, it's so weird. I mean, talking to not just young people, not particularly just like kids, but people who are fully old enough to vote and things. Um, just trying to talk to them what it's like about what it was like in a pre-Google, pre-Wikipedia, pre-internet era. And perversely, what the, the benefits of inconvenience. And it's really weird playing those games now when there was nothing else to do. Like, you know, just the demands and patience of these incredibly hard games. And it's weird seeing them, you know, this come back as a, as a fashion in games now. Like, no autosave. Well, you've just got to play the whole level again, or it's insta-death, or like, you know, Spelunky or something like that, which is very much calling back on that fantastically unforgiving epoch of games. Oh, yeah. um, but it was odd looking at Half-Life again, and, oh, well, we'll get to that in more detail, but just realising that room held me up for a week, and I had no idea how to get past it. <laughs> at all but that was but I was still fully invested in it there was nothing else to do I got, it was like they, they, they say so about um, baseball or cricket so the thing about these sports is you've got to remember they were invented at a time where there was literally nothing else to do these people would have been standing in a field anyway <laughs> so for you on your kind of gaming life what what did you what was the games that you started going for uh, well, the, the stuff I actually started playing in person, it was I had to wait till university. Mm. So I went to Glasgow Uni, a fantastic place. Uh, uh, miss it terribly. Would love going back. Um, and there was the uh, historical computing department. For some reason, they, they digitised it. They'd scanned in all these um, Glasgow city records, and there was a kind of uh, computerised historical statistics course that people could do. But basically, it was the one lab that had... PCs, and there was the admin who ran it, and he let people play Doom on it, and that was it. That was the first time I'd ever used a machine like these were four eight sixes. The the first thing that could do three D graphics, and I just it just blew my mind. Wolfenstein three D, and then Doom, and I just never seen anything like it. Yeah, Wolfenstein three D, um, like perhaps a big inspiration for what would come for Splash Damage, which kind of leads into. <laughs> How you got into the industry side of things? It was very strange. Um, so I was working in TV production and uh, making for an awful, <laughs> awful, awful network, way ahead of its time, trying to make uh, TV out of games. Mm. So I was working. I was in very much in TV production, and Paul Wedgwood, the founder of uh, Splash Damage, was this kind of was a consultant there, and we were making a sports show out of Quake 3 Arena just as he was setting up the Splash Damage which was a mod team then and thinking you know I could probably set this up as a dev studio and he was getting some encouragement from id Software and so innocently and I was about to get laid off little did I know uh, and I was getting I was doing little bits of freelance writing and some terrible games journalism I was absolutely awful at and he started saying so um <sighs> Yeah, have you ever thought about doing freelance writing? I thought, well, no, no, not really, no. <laughs> not realising that was half of a job offer. Um, and then brilliantly was brought in on, you know, on Splash Damage's first game, not right from the very beginning, but um, uh, Return to Castle Wolfenstein. Or enemy, it, was the multi, it was the mod of the multiplayer bit of Return to Castle Wolfenstein, and Splash, which was Splash Damage's first game, um, Wolfenstein Enemy Territory, which was a ridiculous stroke of luck I mean when people ask me how I got into the industry it's like I don't by accident I fell into it I had no idea um, so yeah initially it was just they wanted somebody who knew about World War 2 and about guns and I never thought any of that would come in useful um, or that my, I'd ever make use of my history degree um, and I was brought round to the office 
and they had some it looked a lot like like Return to Castle Wolfenstein uh, and they had one of the UIs up and like an idiot I just went that's not an M1 carbine <laughs> oh no that was a really rude and that was that was the best thing I could have possibly said it's like we need the guy who knows the difference in this and that <laughs> um, so yeah all my, my war nerdery um, uh, and, and, and sort of um, military technology uh, uh, knowledge which was pretty slender back then looking back on it um, it made me a good hire and I was freelance and part time then went designer then back to writer and then lead writer and apparently that was 12 years ago <laughs> so <laughs> the, bis- next, the next thing of which I was fully aware is apparently this is what I do <laughs> so basically a real life human yo-yo yes <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into your favourite game, then Half Life. Um, so when I normally, when I normally ask this question, that's with the assumption that there's been, you know, a couple of games in the series in the past. But the fun- of course, Half Life was the first in the series, and it was Val's first game as well. So, like, talk, talk of your perhaps anticipation for it, or as the kids mm. would say today, hype. The hype. The hype. I I came really late to Half-Life I was living with my parents I'd, I'd come, I'd, I was, it was uh, a really frustrating period where I was in a just nothing was quite happening for me and I was in a band and it was just about to get signed and then it didn't quite happen and then I was doing bits of um, the production management or kind of music stuff and it just didn't quite turn into something else and my parents were getting fed up of me living there and I was fed up of living there but didn't know what else to do and I was gaming on my dad's laptop usually ridiculously late at night which was not bad for a laptop, but it was not a big, pokey games machine. And I'd heard great things about um, Half-Life, and by the point I got to it, it was the Game of the Year box with the T-shirt. And the notion that I could buy this thing, and there was a garment included in it, was just the most exciting thing. <laughs> T-shirt dad, sell, oh, games! Yeah, I wish I'd kept that T-shirt, oh my goodness. Anyway, I doubt it would fit by now. I could probably wear it as a kind of short scarf. Um... <laughs> But, you know, there was... I didn't know anyone else who played PC games back then. This was before I had the job making, you know, doing uh, games TV. So I was just trying to puzzle it out from myself, or very occasionally I'd buy a games magazine, you know, a PC Gamer or PC Zone, and go, well, I, I do what? Or, and there were... At that point, you could you could start looking up... If you got stuck, eventually I worked out that you could search on the internet. Like, this is how basic it was. I was rubbing sticks together. Like there were times where I got completely stuck on something, and either I worked out how to skip it. I mean, basically, Half Life was the first game where I ever entered a console command. That was an absolute first for me. Like, oh, I could no clip this bit. Ooh. It took me so many goes to get it right because you've got to change the um, the string in the desktop shortcut to to enable cheats. That took me days to work out where <laughs> I was going wrong there. Another thing that Half Life was kind of famous for was that. It it took on scripted sequences, and that and that was kind of unheard of for a game uh, uh, at the time. I don't know, certainly for nineteen ninety eight. Anyways, yeah, well, I didn't, I, I didn't realize that was great. I mean, the fact that the cutscenes are all witnessed from first person, and you never lose control of your character. I didn't know any different. I hadn't played any or enough games that weren't like that. Uh, certainly not first person games. Um, now looking at it, now it's just so 
elegance, that first really long compulsory, you know, you arrive, it's your, you know, you're late for your first day of work and it's all there. You're looking around the monorail, you know, on the monorail system and there's all these things are foreshadowed or set up. There's, oh look, there's the surface. Oh look, there's a Apache gunship that you're going to see later. Oh look, there's a rocket. There's some goo and the brilliance of the voiceover. Just a, a um, and it's interesting. I, I've actually, in preparation for this, I, I, I emailed Mark Laidlaw at at at, um, at uh, 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 Valve um, to ask him, just like, how how did you do that? How did you know how to do that? Um, and most of it, he's been really really helpful with the answers. But most of it was, well, no one told us no. <laughs> it was our first game. We weren't sure what did or didn't work. Not that you know, so many more. So many fewer games had been written at all at that point that they really had a license to experiment. And they just landed on this amazing tone. Partly it's down to the actors. The VR actors are fantastic. Um, uh, particularly, oh Lord, um, Hal Robbins, who's the voice of Dr. Kleiner, the main side. It's just, I mean, they're good lines. They're some of my favourite lines, you know. Um, it's probably not a problem, probably, but uh, no, 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 it's fine. You know, that's just a really well-written line and it gives the actor something really chewy to do. But just the brilliant mixture of the familiar and the strange. Like, I've never been in a big, you know, science, secret, military science lab, but that combination of, um, you know, please keep you know, your, your hands inside the, uh, you know, the monorail at all times, uh, you know, if you know of anyone else... Um, you know, we have currently have positions in low, uh, was it low risk um, security and materials handling. And I love the fact that it says you've got a PhD, but all you do is push a wheelbarrow. <laughs> like you, you are effectively a gardener. <laughs> um, and like you mentioned, how the game had those no cutscenes, but as well as like it was, it felt a very seamless game. Not to mention without the cutscenes. Not to mention as well, like there was. No voice to Gordon Freeman. We had a voiceless protagonist, a first perhaps for it, a modern video game. It was so well. Yeah, the, for a start, there's that thing that there are no levels. It's all contiguous. Yeah, it's all, which is astonishing, and really hard to do. Um, although maybe that's a reflection on there are only certain settings that will allow that. So it really helps if you are climbing through tubes, and you know, so you can have a an S curve in a tube, which means you can't see either end of it. Like you can't do that with an open world game. Well, you can kind of stream bits in, but it really helps to have fogging. You know, just that there are all these technical constraints that they solved in fantastically elegant ways. It just everything there was really just appropriate and fun and cool and felt right. Um, but also, sorry, what the, you, you mentioned something else in that question. I've immediately forgotten it. There was the fact that it was contiguous, and there was and there was the, oh, the fact that you and it was a voiceless. Except, I've only just realised playing this through again. You do hear Gordon Freeman's voice, or rather, you hear him breathing. Oh. When there's the resonance cascade, you know, explosion in the test chamber, and he gets teleported to all these different locations. You hear there's this kind of panting, and that's him. You do hear Gordon Freeman's voice. He just doesn't say words. Oh. I hadn't realised that. No, but now that you've told me, I do. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but like, I've, I've, I've never played Half Life One itself. Like the closest that I've gotten is the Black Mesa uh, remake of sorts. Yeah. But like, I've, I've played Half Life Two to its completion plus the episodes. But I mean, and I might be wrong, but you do kind of hear pants and groans a wee bit from Gordon. There's Cream. no exertions. That's the weird 
thing. The audio is immaculate and it's still tremendous. It's quite low fidelity, but all of it is so good. And you always like you know you hear the threat before you see it, and it's it, it, it's everything's wonderful. The, 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 when you you're, the way your footsteps change when you go from one, um, a concrete surface to a metal one, that blew my mind. When you go into an air duct of which there are many. And the way that even that's set up in the opening kind of monologue, like, uh, you know, the temperatures in Black Mesa are kept at a comfortable 68 degrees. Of course, there's air conditioning vents everywhere. Um, but uh, no, there's no exertions when you get hit. There's no exertions. Hang on, when you fall, do you go, Ugh, and you take full, uh, full damage? No, there's just a crunch. It goes, and then your suit goes, beep, and it shows you how much damage you've left. It's really subtly done. It's yeah. so smart. The way the user interface and the HUD and the audio and the damage markers on screen it, it it's its a masterpiece I mean this is the thing that Valve are great at is they don't put anything in their games they can't do fantastically well and if anything this is the game they made their mistakes in because it's still got this horrible slithery physics so do not for a start you know first person jumpers are no fun first person platform games are just not a great idea and there's so many bits in Half-Life where you've got to make these precision jumps when you're just slithering off things left right and centre it's like that's not fun the fail states aren't always satisfying there's some very good physics jokes like they'll tempt you by going oh look here's a kind of rotten rope uh, bridge over here and there's a you know a goodie that's in plain sight and you know it's going to collapse and it's just there to distract you. There are some really good sight gags where they go, oh, you'll want to go here. Here's a head crab. Here, you know, that you are a kind of, you are the visual punchline. Quite often it's kind of, you know, there's a period where you do finally go outside. Oh, there's just loads of nested gags. Like, you're underground, you're deep underground. The uh, test chamber blows up and they say, right, get to the surface. You've got to get help. Get to the surface. So you spend all your time going back up the escalators or elevators um, you, you you came down, and the moment you get to the surface, you're immediately attacked and have to dive back down again. <laughs> and then when you do get outside, you're on the side of this huge canyon, and you're climbing up these you know ladders set into the side of this cliff, and you get to the top. There's a head crab. <laughs> it's just it's such a it's like this kind of Buster Keaton style. I, I just it, it, I just amazed me that a game could be so witty, and not just in terms of people saying clever things, but the, the whole level design just the puzzles as well being really some no they're not all great the good ones are fantastic um the lines of vo wonderful the writing's fantastic the vo performances are fantastic but i'd never seen witty gameplay before or, or puzzles and that, that it, it's still amazing how well the good ones hold up the bad ones are atrocious <laughs> um there's a bit where there's there's a tank you get outside and there's a tank and it's just not really clear because there's no health bar and there, there aren't really damage states Oh, just things that are really obvious now. Like, oh, um, if you can kill a thing by doing cumulative damage to it, there should be damage states or health, but, or just some indication that, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Instead of which, it just like takes an arbitrary number of hits to blow this thing up. Mm. Like, oh, actually, it turns out it's just that. Oh, if I carried on just hitting it with the crowbar for long enough, it would have eventually blown up. And then there's, so there's kind of M1 Abrams tank, and then very soon after that, there's a sort of M2, M3 Bradley, which is a much lighter, less well-protected vehicle, which is much tougher. Or it turns out you've got to target the turret and not, like, the engine or the rear armour. It's like, well, that, hmm, that's not really clear. That's not great monster design. There should be some visual hints towards that or some clue. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that they've got profoundly right with all of their other games. But it's kind of 
it's kind of delicious watching this period where the, people just didn't know that then they hadn't enough game not enough games would be made to know here's the rules for how you design an enemy mm. by the way uh, I, I i frequently get asked is there one book on game design i recommend and for years there was nothing and now there absolutely is um it's a book by scott rogers who was uh i think lead on the first god of war for uh, um, a game and he's written a book called level up the guide to great game design and it's just tremendous i can't recommend it highly enough um and it's full of things just like and here's a list of every kind of enemy you meet in a 2d platformer and you look at it and there's like eight of them you go oh come on there's got to be more than that oh no oh no you're right every single possible like it's full of things that sound incredibly obvious once they've been pointed out but you know a lot of work by a lot of very smart people went into coming up with these rules or realizing you know what if you've got a really wacky setting and really wacky characters and they've got really wacky powers it's kind of unfamiliar it's much better if you've got a familiar setting with unfamiliar characters in it or vice versa like it took there was it, there was a great period of experimentation in the 80s and 90s and then the genres were pretty much set and we haven't seen a huge amount you know since then in terms of advancement other than going back to text that's the weird thing about now with twine twine games um that we're back to this kind of uh you know 1980s mud technology which is amazing we, we touched upon it slightly just down but like it the set pieces in half-life like it's not just the tanks as well but like um the helicopter as well something like that yeah. Just, just talk about those. I mean, looking at them now, they're hilariously blocky. But uh, you know, there, there just aren't that many polys on screen because the hardware couldn't handle it at the time. But it actually, it's held up pretty well. It, it kind of feels like like Minecraft Call of Duty because <laughs> um, it's crude, but the animation's really good, and everything in it is is really clear. Um, compare that to, and you can you can read the characters very well. The environment's not always quite so well, but the characters are immaculate. You can tell when they've taken damage. You can tell when they're just about to complete an action, or how long it takes for them to reload. Um, things like that. I mean, you can you could teach an animation masterclass on stuff like the aliens in um, oh lord Halo, just masterpiece in oh this guy's in cover. This guy hasn't spotted you yet. This guy is waiting. You know. Uh, this guy's shocked and his shield is down and now he's back and the, the shield is up. Like There are so many cues in the animation itself rather than any kind of HUD marker or you know, visual effect. Um, and so even though they're very low res and very blocky and the animation rigs aren't very complex, they're amazingly good. When the helicopter turns up, the audio is fantastic if kind of, you know, sort of 8-bit in terms of audio or whatever. Um <laughs> So they're all really characterful, even if they're really, really blocky. Um, and then, you know, at the time that was cutting-edge graphics. Now, obviously, it's, there's you know, no one's ever going to mistake that for photorealism. But they weren't going for photorealism at the time. Even then, they were going for quite a defined, cartoonish, illustrated look. And it still holds up. You can tell. You look at a character. Oh, that's a frightened scientist. Fantastic. Oh, that's a confident marine. That's a space alien dude who's probably trying to kill me. Um, in terms of character design and animation design, it's it's really it's so strong. It holds up really well. And then all those big the set these kind of set piece things that you you witness, like the giant aliens or these things teleporting in, or um, yes, helicopters turning up. They're still really effective because they're framed really well and they're animated really well, even if they're distractively distractingly Minecraftish. 
we did touch also upon this uh, a bit earlier. Um, the game's continuous nature, but it's not just um, an element that's become synonymous in Half-Life. Of course, it's it's become synonymous with Valve games, with the exception, of course, of Dota and Team Fortress. Yeah. Um, like, is that something we want to see in more games, or do we think it's just still going to be this kind of chapter breakup? Mm. It depends. It's I mean, it sounds kind of pedantic, but it really depends on where your game is set. Mm. Um, and this is something that continually blows me away when I think about Portal. Because mm. what, what other possible setting is there where all of the story is generated by the player actions and nothing else? Like, what possible environment could you... You know, um, you know life... It is, you know, the cliche is for multiplayer shooters is, right, why are there no civilians? Because we don't want you shooting civilians, so why is the area, why are there not civilians to shoot? Which is why so many games are set in, and also crowd physics are really expensive. So generally games take place in dystopian, you know, like uh, uh, apocalyptic wastelands because we want the area nice and clear and clear of clutter. And also because we can render environments really well, whereas reality is really tough and convincing civilians is very tough and we don't want you killing them. So the test labs for, you know, was it in, um, uh, 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 in Portal? Was it Aperture Inc? Uh, where else could you set a game that would let you do that? It's genius. Where oh. else would you... Because, you know, all, lots of games are about solving puzzles and it's a real struggle to try and contextualise them. It's a test lab. The whole point is to solve puzzles. It's it's so it's so obvious. <laughs> it's brilliant because of the things it because of all the things you don't have to do and all the things it lets you do. But the more I think about design, these kind of design questions, it's it's about what what they avoid. It's about what they the the, the problems they've just eliminated entirely. And for example, um. Because uh, Portal came out after Half-Life 2, which has, I think most people would agree, one of the most convincing NPC companions in any game. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. You know, kind of, you know, brilliant character, you know, um, smart, competent, really good company. Um, and fantastic. They haven't done that again. <laughs> uh, and so then they go to... And the, the, the basic issue that all games deal with when trying to represent things is that games are boxes and squares and sometimes if you're lucky they're pistons and hinges it's really difficult to make those seem like lifelike human beings even if you do motion capture and performance capture the no matter how good the performance is you can't i mean there's a myth in the industry and the film industry as well this notion that oh great you just capture it and play it back and that's your performance it just doesn't work that way the human body is so extraordinarily complex just shoulders alone are amazing joints to one degree or another no matter how high the resolution of your motion capture you're capturing that data on an amazing machine and you're playing it back on an animation rig that just has fewer points of articulation that's just that's just how it is and if you're lucky you'd have a particular style. I'm, you know, obviously, Naughty Dog are just the masters at this, and and the Uncharted season, uh, uh, series are fantastic, and they're really good at it. And they do what we'd all like to do. They block book the actors. They cast somebody who's. And it's no coincidence that Nathan Drake and Nathan Fillion are proportionally identical. Mm. 
So, you know, the data's pretty clean. But it takes a huge amount of cleanup by the animators. This stuff is, it's not all handmade, but for example, what was the first Lord of the Rings film with, with Gollum in it? Like, none of that was motion capture. The technology just wasn't there. What they had was lots of really good reference video for the animators to keyframe. Um, so there's so much of the industry and so much thought and, and expertise goes into trying to make pistons and hinges look like human flesh or look like, you know, uh, do convincing actually movements. And then look what they do with Portal. It's just machines. It's just blocks rising into place. It's just things hinging. And yet they're incredibly full of character. I mean, GLaDOS is one of the great game characters, even when she's reduced to a potato. I think both the Portal games just make me laugh. Every, every ten seconds for three hours? You know, that, that's, there aren't many films that can do that. But the bit where... GLaDOS was turned into a potato on a failing battery, like with a really limited charge and could only pipe up every couple of minutes and was still the most vivid presence in any game of any character. I, 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 nearly, I nearly tore up my, uh, my designer card at that point. It's like, I can't top that. That's, they've, they've won computer games. Curse you, Val. <laughs> um, I should point out, by the way, um, just after I asked that question, I completely realised Left 4 Dead is broken in the chapters. So, oops... Yeah, although that was... I mean, you could argue that that's realistic. I mean, it's re- I love Left 4 Dead, both of them. You could argue that actually that's kind of a... F- not quite a failure, because they're both incredibly brilliantly playable games. Um, but one, one thing that doesn't quite come through is how much it's based on 70s you know, horror movies. So mm. you start off and there's the, post, the film poster of you in this thing. And some of the things they do are pretty subtle. Like, when the zombies pile on, they, depending on your graphic settings and your card and so on, they change the quality of the image. And, of course, the music is a very kind of, you know, Goblin-style, Dario Argento-style, you know, horror, electronic horror score. But they're deliberately trying to make the graphics look more filmic, more grainy, kind of, you know, cinema-ish. And that's not how it feels. It doesn't feel like a horror film. I think they've come up with something in some ways richer and stranger than that but that was a kind of you know aesthetic goal that they set out to do that kind of doesn't land in effect it, it, it's incredibly reassuring to see that like an, an outfit as accomplished as a valve not everything they do works perfectly um in fact they're they're exemplary in that regard where they they will put up for example the you know first previs version of the um left 4 dead trailer mm. and they said look this just doesn't work you know, here it is, we tried this, there's this big beat, it's supposed to be scary, and it came off comic. And that was so liberating for me to see. It's like, oh, thank goodness. They, they're they not perfect first time. They have to try stuff out. They have to iterate. Because, you know, also it helps that they're self-funded, so the game only goes out when they're, they're ready for it. Because otherwise I just feel like, well, oh, God, I mean, you know, my, my first, look at their stuff, it's perfect. Look at my stuff, it's all full of compromises, and, you know, there's loads of things I wish I could do better. And it's so weird to hear them going, oh, we wish you could do that better. That felt like a really bad compromise. Like, what? Dude, you make perfect games. Stop it. I just thought of something. Um, and yeah. that's how Valve can perfectly toe the line in terms of the tone, their talent, their games. Oh, it's like, a, it, yeah, I mean, cause tone like, is the toughest thing. Yeah. Tone is the t- because you've got so many different disciplines there's the writing there's the level design the character design the animation the texture art the 2d art the 3d art it's so tough to keep that all in one place mm. so it's no su- surprise that the most 
narratively coherent games being made today are the ones made by the smallest teams with the fewest moving parts. You can just focus on something really specific. And that's the thing I love most about particularly the indie games that deliver one really focused kind of authored statement like papers please you know deliberately really low res animations but exactly what they want you to feel or i don't know this war of mine or gone home you know deliberately they could have made that much fancier visually but that would be misleading and it would give you false expectations about what that game's about um it's really rare to get tone right and quite often with high production value or, you know, big budget games, there's this mismatch between what the game kind of ha- commercially has to be and what you're claiming it creatively is about. And I think the clearest example of that is Bioshock Infinite, which for me, I, I've, I've got a basic failure as a critic because when I look at things, I tend to ask, how well did they execute that brief rather than should they have done that in the first place? Like, for me, it's just, I don't really think about whether it's a good problem. It's just like, how well did they try and solve it? And that game was only ever going to be around running and, shoot, you know, running and shooting things. So it's a problem when you've got these cutscenes that are alleging that it's about more than that. And where cutscenes do well, it's about establishing context that makes your gameplay objectives and mechanics meaningful. Oh, I get it. I do this, and this is, this is why that's a big deal. When it doesn't work, they are trying to carry a thematic burden that is actually that either the rest of the gameplay can't sustain or it's actually contradicted by the gameplay. Um, and that's a big problem in my work because, like, for multiplayer shooters, no one's playing those for the story. <laughs> you know, you want to have a rich world. You want to have a world that people can kind of dig into and find out more about. But, you know, it, these people are, you know, are going to be playing these maps again and again and again. You don't want to overburden them. You know, it's taken a t- couple of goes to work out how much backstory the world actually needs for people to play the multiplayer map. And frankly, I've got that wrong in both directions several times. Hmm. So to watch Half-Life, it is... This was something I was really pressing Mark Laidlaw on, is how did he get the tone? Like, you know, because he was a science fiction author. Like, you know, were you writing stuff like that before? How did it... How did you arrive at the tone for the dialogue did you have to change it what direction were you giving the voice actors you know at what point did you ever go oh that's too big or that's too small or we need it a bit campier than that or we need it a bit more realistic and it just feels like they'd lucked into it with the actors they've got particularly hal robbins um and if you want to see a, a baffling kind of like prototype of all this go on youtube and look for a movie called chameleons K-A-M-I-L-L-I-O-N-S which is a kind of very low budget comedy sci-fi horror thing where he's a kind of eccentric scientist uh, who's got this idea who creates a portal, a kind of, you know, dimensional portal. It's kind of a resonance cascade issue in his basement and aliens come through and it's like, it's Dr. Kleiner. <laughs> it is. And, and he'd already done that, you know, by the time that when um, uh, Mark Laidlaw cast him for Half-Life. And said, look, this is the guy. He can do it. And they, they got him. He got him on the phone, on speakerphone, just to say a couple of things. And they just, everyone in the room just went, of course, we've got to get this guy in. He's perfect. But that tone, it could have been so different. It could have gone so wrong. I mean, I'm trying to think of games from that era that had really good voice acting and really good scripts. And that had charm or had a kind of, you know, had tone that worked. And there's basically only No One Live Forever. And everything else is pretty clunky and hasn't held up magnificently well. Hmm. But partly it's because Mark Laidlaw's a, you know, a proper writer, and this was nearly ten years after Aliens, and he just said, look, I just don't want any cliches in the game. So even though there are Marines 
and they say kind of grr, you know, marine things. They're not aliens, marines. No. Um, there's a great little example of that. There's the bit where, as Gordon Freeman, you get knocked out all of a sudden. You're being dragged by these marines, and there's this little exchange like, oh, they want to take him topside for questioning. It says, oh, really? You know, this guy's killed all of our guys? And says, why don't we just get rid of him? And they say, and, and another marine says, oh, well, how are we going to explain the body? And the other marine says, what body? And they take him to the trash compactor. And purely through a mix-up with the scripts, the two actors read each other's lines. And initially, it was going to be the older marine who told the younger marine what body you know we can just make this guy disappear and then the younger marine kind of goes oh i get it i see but by accident they read it the other way around they went, no that's great do that it's way more it's just better if it's the younger more junior younger sounding marine who comes up with a really disturbing idea and it's going this kind of sinister like let's just get this guy lost let's just disappear this guy and the ability you know a lesser writer would have gone no that's not how it's written you know, I want it that way around. But to realise, oh, wait, that's way cooler if it's the young guy who comes up with a more sinister idea. Like, that level of attention is present throughout the script and throughout all of the performances in that game. It's wonderful. We should probably, if we're going to talk about Half-Life 1, we have to talk about, you know, a, perhaps a very... I don't know if this would be a controversial aspect of the game or not, but Zen. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thematically it ties in really nicely and I think this is a problem with lots of writing uh, uh, for games and for movies as well is that there's a temptation to think oh well this this adds up thematically like this actually counts it's all been leading towards this but it just feels like you know it's this weird coda at the end that's actually got nothing to do with the rest of the game because the gameplay action is so different in fact thematically it's all been like it's all been leading up to that all of the there's lots of you know little touches or when you first realize that these aliens being beamed in they're already been collecting them and there's you know you go to that holding area and there's this little crab of uh, uh, a little pen full of uh, head crabs that get teleported somewhere else and it's actually been set up that black mesa has been established has been trying to find these specimens and they've been sending people out in hev suits like you're wearing to this other place but that's not how it feels like for the player that's not a meaningful change. I mean, I was thrilled and amazed the first time you go into Zen and you see those previous Gordon Freemans, like, dead. Like, oh, my God, they've been doing this all along. In fact, I so hoped, before Half-Life 2 came out, I so hoped that the sequel to Half-Life 1 would be that kind of initial building of Black Mesa where they st- they've just started getting hold of the... You know, the G-Man would be there, Kleiner would be younger, maybe have sideburns. And uh, sometime in the 60s or 70s, they you know, they were starting to... That do these first trips to gather uh, to gather specimens, and they hadn't um, attracted the attention of the Nihilanth yet. Uh, they did okay with the Half Life Two, though. I'm not complaining. <laughs> um, so l- let's let's touch upon uh, someone you just mentioned um, that we've not mentioned at all until now. Um, that is the G Man. Uh, um, there was a great direction, bit of direction they gave the guy. And they said, like, he should feel uncomfortable with human language. <laughs> so you just, oh, Mr. Freeman. It's like he d- hates making those noises. It's, br- I mean, that's a great bit of direction. It's one of the things that um, writers always mutter about is uh, what's the best bit of direction you can give an actor? Or, or, and, uh, and it's incredibly flattering as a writer or a director when an actor comes up and says, oh, that was a great note. So... <laughs> 
I'm always a bit suspicious of, of actors who say that because it's such a, an ego stroke for a director or a writer. Oh, that was a great note you gave me. Um, and one of the great writer stories that gets told again and again is there's uh, Billy Wilder, the great Hollywood director. Um, he was doing shooting some scene, and in the background there was an extra, a set in an office, and there was some extra, and he was just there, you know, being an extra in an office. And at, in between takes, Wilder, you know, the director, who has no need to talk to this extra at all, just whispers into his ear, it's the taste of the stamps. Mm. And it's just a perfect bit of direction, because it just, it's something really, it just gives him a really clear thing to have in his head it's a sensual thing that you can really draw on and it's a whole world of that guy's like this office workers situation like i could cope with the bad pay i could hope i hope you know with my boss and with my idiot co-workers but if i have to link lick one more stamp in this bloody office i swear you know it's just a whole world in one line mm. and it's very rare to get writing of that quality or direction of that quality or just something where you get a little line and a whole world comes out of it. Like, and there's some lovely touches of that in in, in Half Life. Like, there's one scientist who just says, "Oh, you know, they they're going to the surface, but you know, everyone's trying to get to the surface. But you know, what happens when people find out what we've been doing down here?" Or um, there's one marine who says, "Really, we're shooting civilians? Like, that wasn't who came up with this mission? Like, killing monsters? Sure, that's why I joined the Marine Corps, but this seems wrong." Or when you finally get round. Uh, you're about to go to Zen, or is it the gluon gun you get given? I can't remember. But one scientist says, "Yeah, I invented this." But you know, I, oh yeah, that's the gluon gun. Uh, uh, gun. And says, "Yeah, I invented this, but I, you know, I, I can't bring myself to use it." But you, you know, looking at Gordon Freeman, you know, you look like you're, you look like you're, 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 you're a killer. You could do this. <laughs> um, and yeah, by the end of it, you've basically wiped out a whole species. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a really like that. I mean, Deus Ex, I guess, is the other great example of a game from around that, but actually a bit later, where you just realise that you didn't have to put your brain in a tank to play it. Like, it was actually about stuff, that you responded to it as a reader, and that as much thought has gone into it as a, a well-written film or book, uh, there still aren't many games, partly because it's just very difficult to make narratively coherent games, but it's so... Your hands are so tied as a writer because you, you can't do it all with words. You've got to use all these other disciplines and all these other people's work and all these animators and artists and they've all got their own interpretation of it. And it's and you're very rarely in charge of the process. So unless you're, um, oh, I don't know, James Cameron and you can say, no, do it again. <laughs> I don't care if you've rendered that scene, you're going to do it again. You know, the guy who renders your scene may not even be in the same time zone as you. It may be in a completely different place than the, you know, the CG trailer comes back or something it's like oh they made it look like that huh okay i guess i better change the script then um so yeah there are definitely bits that don't work in half-life i think it was an incredibly smart choice with the g-man that you know they just don't make him a quest giver he doesn't keep nudging you along and saying ah now gordon you're gonna have to do this you get scientists saying that but he was just to have to have this guy who doesn't really talk to you till the end that's amazing mm. that's really and and i mean i don't know i think there would be a, i'd love to read someone's thesis on just narration vo narration in valve games because there are so many smart choices being made you know in terms of glados or um uh you know the, the npcs you meet in and, and set up the next bit all the security guards who say oh Oh, just the very fact that he's pleased to see you. Hey, 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 Gordon, good to see you. I guess you're in the barrel today. Or 
if you press the uh, alarm button right at the beginning of the game, it says, Freeman, what are you doing? You're trying to get me in trouble? The fact that he knows you, and there's that kind of belief, even though it's quite an extreme, you know, crazy situation, it's just the ability to sell a kind of mundane office relationship as well as, oh, by the way, there's been an interdimensional space invasion, you know, alien invasion. That's pretty high-quality writing and performance. I'm, I'm still kind of in awe of that. You mentioned as well, like, um, the, how you thought the G-Man kind of had this concept of he didn't like using human language, right? Yeah. Um, a funny thought just popped into my head. Um, like, we all know kind of the G-Man is this kind of puppet master, so to speak, of the series. Yeah. Um, and a funny thought just came into my head. Um, we can touch upon it in detail uh, in just a bit. But there's this bit in episode two, you'll remember, where Alex is attacked. Yes. And uh, she's laid out on the table with the Vorticons. I, I thought there was, a, there was a hilarious bit where... Because like, clearly, you know, Alex Spade's a very attractive woman and, and you just know they're going to be staring at her breasts. Like, you know, she's, she's, thankfully she's not too pneumatic a stereotype, kind of like, you know, female game character. And you do totally get to see her breasts in X-Ray. <laughs> <laughs> there are these, these two, you know, fatty glands that can produce milk under certain circumstances. I thought that was hilarious. I thought that was one of the best game joke about games I've ever seen in a game. It was just tremendous. Like, oh, I wonder if I get to see her undressed. Undressed? You get to see her visceral organs. <laughs> um, but uh, just just to touch upon that scene further, um, there you'll remember where the bit where time stops and he goes, Doctor Freeman, yes. and 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 like you said, like he has this concept of not liking human language, but at the same time. I get the feeling that he won't mind using it if, you know, he has you as a kind of, sort of, like I said, a puppet, so to speak. It's, I mean, what do we know, particularly in... The, it would just take the first Half-Life. Obviously, they don't know there's going to be a sequel. They've got some ideas, and some of the things that they cut from Half-Life 1 ended up in Half-Life 2. Um, like, for instance, oh, what's her name in Half-Life 2? There's, the side, there's a kind of triple agent scientist... Oh, I know um, who you're on about. Yeah, and that was that. Apparently, that was based on they were going to have a scientist in Half Life One who said, "Oh, come here, it'll be fine." And then she called security or something. There was going to be someone who betrayed you, but it got it didn't work out, and they got cut. But they 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 lo- they clearly liked that idea as a beat and came up with a really good version of it. Um, just the control. I mean, just to have something in the game that you don't then go on and explain the life out of. Like, oh yeah, there's going to be this guy, and you see him from time to time. You see him on the initial. Uh, you know, he's there witnessing you arriving at work when you arrive on the monorail. At one point you glance over and there he is in another monorail car looking at you. And from time to time you see him, he looks through a window and straightens his tie and they don't actually, he doesn't actually come out and explain, well all along I've been tracking your progress and blee and blah and blah. It's fantastic control to hold that back. Mm. You know, like, well, you know, I, you know, I can really imagine a publisher going, but yeah, but when's he going to explain what's going on? He never does. Just at the end, he says, you know, you're really talented. My employer, everything he says has got so many, you know, inverted commas around it. My employer thinks you've got talent, you know, and either I'll give you a battle you can't win or... Uh, and then the next thing you know, you wake up and it's you're on the the train to City 17. Hmm. Yeah, and and that end our opening in itself is, ugh, but but we can uh, touch upon that in a second. Um, we talked a bit in tone of um, Valve's games, but the thing is, like, 
the only reason I've been put off playing Half-Life 1 properly, like, like, I mean, like like I said uh, earlier, I, I finished Half-Life 2 plus its episodes to completion. Yeah. But, the, but the thing that's kind of put me off Half-Life 1 is that it's it feels more like a horror game, whereas Half-Life 2 has less of that horror vibe, with the exception, of course, of Ravenholm. Hmm. But it feels more like oh, an yes, action game. That's that's I mean that's one of the great horror levels in games, mm. isn't it? They're kind of they're werewolves. They just happen to be zombie werewolves. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's really worth playing. It really is. There'll definitely be bits where you'll just stop and just go. I have no idea what to do here, and then you find out and go. Oh, really? I mean, if you can't solve it, particularly because there've been so many games built since then, and you know you're quite an exper- you know you're a very experienced gamer, and you kind of have a sense of what a game level tends to be, which I didn't have the first time I played it at all um you know if you can't solve it in the five in the like three to five minutes just you know look it up and you go oh really i, I just do that oh, okay i don't feel bad about looking that up um yeah it's not i mean i'm not a huge fan of horror i tell that there's i think there's a, a difference between horror and suspense and i know in movie terms there's a discussion of writers that like the difference between being scared that something nasty and sudden is going to happen and feeling scared about what's already happened hmm. um i think half like and there are you know there are lots of things that suddenly appear and go boo but that's never the main thing that's going on it's the fact you know the fact that you don't know what's around the corner and the, also, the score. I've got to say, the way they, the use of music is magnificent, and it's a re- there's so many smart choices. For example, there's one bit where you've got to avoid a sniper, and it's a really, really smart counterintuitive thing. Where actually, it's quite blissed out music. It actually makes it much more horrific, um, and it reminded me of. Did you play Limbo? You know that two D black and white, yeah. Like, and there's the bit where spoilers abound. You know, you spend the whole time heading from screen left to screen right, and there's a bit where the sp- huge spider turns up behind you, like you know, it comes from screen left, and the music—it is a wonderful score. I can't remember the name of the musician, but it's all kind of you know, conc- music concrete. It's all kind of, you know, uh, environmental, real life sounds that are assembled into a soundtrack. And with the music, they do not go da 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 or da 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 da. It's a it's a strange, strangely peaceful and detached bit of music, and it makes it much more horrific. It's much more disturbing that way. It's a really smart choice, and I think that's how it is for Half-Life One. Like there are some strange things, and they certainly make you feel like, "Wow, this is really bad. This is a really bad thing that's happened." But it's not. It doesn't strike me as a horror game. Um, but then again, it's not Silent Hill either. You don't spend your time running around in mist, going, "Oh, my daughter." No, 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 no. I don't. I don't mean to imply it in that way, but I think like what I've uh, heard, or well, not heard, but like what I felt of Half Life One is that that it did have a bit more of a horror vibe than the action vibe Half Life Two mostly has, obviously with the exception of Ravenholm. Hmm. Um, um, another thing I want to touch upon about Half Life um, is its lore. And not not so much in the games itself, but how they m- lapse in the Valve other Valve games, in this case obviously being Portal, because of course there's Aperture and Black Mesa. Well, another, I mean, it's no, basically, what do you, where can you set computer games? Particularly when you've, you've got pretty fierce tech constraints and hardware constraints. You want a, 
a series of boxes. You want sealed rooms. It's very tough to do open environments unless you fo- add loads of fog so you can't, don't have to render to the horizon. So games tend to be set in prisons or forts or castles or space stations or under the sea. You know, like there's, there's a good functional reason why it's like that. Um, so, yeah, in, in a way, it's a kind of chaotic portal you know there are weird science things and there's certainly not a shortage of physics puzzles but it's a very constrained system um there's a wonderful blog which i i, I nick loads of stuff from called building blog but it's it's spelled b-l-d-g-b-l-g um building blog uh which is one it's fantastic on architecture or uh conceptual architecture or cityscapes or just weird things like urban exploration and there's a wonderful article there about uh, uh, the first Die Hard movie and how it's this weird inversion of how like the hero, John McClane just inverts the skyscraper you know, he he's uses every part of the building again, you know, he kind of turns it against them and he's always going into pipes and fissures and using you know, going up on the roof and coming in, in going in and out of doors or windows in weird ways or, you know, using the fire hose to crash into a, a, a lower floor from the outside um and I, I remember when I was reading that, just thinking, Half-Life, that's exactly what happens. Here's this, you've been shown this environment in the opening crawl, you know, the, the, the you take the monorail in. You get shown all these environments and you have to traverse them somehow or use them to solve puzzles or, oh, okay. I mean, a lot of the, the box-dragging puzzles, mainly because the jumping's so little fun. There's some really nice little box puzzles, but... Oh, trying to judge the jumps and the it's just it's really tedious <laughs> it's it really that is not fun um yes it is no coincidence it's the first game i ever used a no clip command on um so let's let's talk about briefly then about the expansions for half-life one um because we've not really touched upon those yet um opposing force of course and uh blue shift they were great yeah i, I loved them opposing force is really good uh so you, you play a marine who's sent into sent into close down, you know, to seal the breach and, and um, they're really, really good. Are those, I mean, so yeah, there's Opposing Force and Blue Shift is where you get to play Barney, which is fantastic. The guard. Um, there's also another one. There was a co-op one. I think it was... Yes! Made, it was made for the PS2 version. That's right. That is right. Where you get to play uh, a, a, a woman scientist and you're the one who positions the sample like for, that then gets pushed upstairs that then you know, the basic you position the wheelbarrow that then gets sent up on the lift and then Gordon pushes it in which I thought was very funny that was a very witty way of doing it but it's, such, it's the gift that keeps on giving it's such a rich environment there's such a clear before and after I mean admittedly Blue Shift you only ever get to see the after but it's such a I mean the in some ways the star of the show is Black Mesa like I would love to play more games just set in the Black Mesa thing. I'd love to see an up version of that. Um, it's such a fascinating place. It's such... It, it, it was, it's made for such strange reasons and such catastrophically weird things happen there. Um, I thought that was an interesting question. Just what are the great game locations? And surely Aperture Science and... You know, Black Mesa in the top five. So, let let's touch upon something then that has been talked about for a very long time: um, the legacy of Half Life. What do you think it is? I think it still sets a bar. I mean, you know, it's an old game, but I think it's still unequalled. I think it's interesting that you know when they 
made Half-Life 2. They set out to do something different. It wasn't like, well, let's let's kind of give give more of the same. They did so many different things. Arguably, the physics puzzles thing were not always much more fun than the 3D jump, platform jumping. But mm. I don't know. It's still... I think my fear was when playing it again to do this is thinking is, is finding out, oh, well, it was kind of great in the 90s, but it's very old hat now. And it's really held up. I'd really urge people to check it out. I mean, let's face it, if you've got Steam, you've got it. <laughs> it's in there. If you are a PC gamer, it is there there to be played. Um, it is fascinating. Even though it does look like, um, uh, you know, Minecraft uh, uh, first-person shooter, the ideas are so good, and the execution is so good, and the music and the ambience the ambient audio is still even though it's very low resolution or low fidelity it's still really good um but it's been a colossal inspiration i mean i feel so fortunate i know it's it's certainly been even though i haven't got to work on those sort of games it's an absolute touchstone for me you just go well look here's what's possible you can have a game as well written as well conceived and as well implemented as that um in, when it comes to writing audio, I mean, Valve set the bar there as well. They've just got, you know, they've, obviously they've got the greatest writing team in games. But, you know, even if you're not writing on the same genre or, or, or kind of in, in, the, in the same medium of game or genre, you can still just aim to have lines as short and as memorable that give actors as interesting things to do as they have. Um it's really interesting. If you go go look for a transcript of the VO lines in Half-Life 1, and pretty much half of them are the first five minutes of the game. I was really shocked how little voiceover there is in the game, but all of it does loads of work. Um, yeah, that's worth bearing in mind when I'm writing another, you know, 30-page 30 30 backstory screed that no one's ever, of lore that no one's ever going to care about. Um <sighs> I mean, that's kind of the that's the thing for the speciality of the writer is is I forget I can't remember who came up with this phrase I think it may have been Jim Swallow that you do a lot of writing on a project that kind of doesn't end up anywhere and no one ever ends, ends up reading except for the, maybe the develop you know the dev team but it's like dark matter it stabilizes the universe like if you hadn't written that the everything else that does end up in the game wouldn't be as in tune hopefully it is in tune but Half Life One still stands out as just this really beautifully written, beautifully made, completely groundbreaking game. Even if nothing in it was... Compl I mean, there'd been other games with teleporting, there's been other games with aliens, there'd been lots of other things, but none of them was good or put together with as much care. And I just think whatever discipline you work in, or just as a gamer, let alone as a developer, there's just so much to draw from that. I mean, you know, it's kind of laughable to think of it as being cutting-edge tech, you know, at the time, because now it looks so crude. But it's just a beautifully balanced game. And, and even though... And the things that are wrong with it are severe, but they are minor... They are just flying on the elephant. They are such minor distractions compared to what it brings. Um, and I think there are some groundbreaking things that have a malign influence. I think... Oh, God. Um, aliens, you know. Mm. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. Which is brilliant. And the trouble is, it's so vivid... And it, it it ends up being used in the wrong way, but it's as partly because hair is so difficult to animate. So if you put a bald man in a green uniform on the bridge of a spaceship, that does a huge amount of work. You know, immediately everyone's up to speed about what kind of game it is and what you're going to do. Um, but 
Yeah, and it's just a kind of a joke within the industry of just like, oh, God, either are you going to try and get lines from aliens in or are you going to make sure you avoid putting lines from aliens in? Because it's just... I suppose you could, but it's just, they're such cliches now. You better, I'm very nervous about doing anything even vaguely aliens-ish. Not that it's not a great film with Mm. wonderful dialogue and and fantastic cast, but, you know, great performances all around. But it's just cast such a huge shadow over games. And where would games be without that influence? And might they not be somewhere more interesting? (laughs) That, that, That would be a kind of butterfly effect I would love to see. Um, let, let's, um, what else did you like about the game that we haven't talked about tonight? Um, the sound is often overlooked, the music, the foley, um, the weapons are great. Oh my goodness, the alien, the little, yeah, the, in the standard game, like, you know, the basic version, it's like it's got all the modded versions of the weapons that the community spent years tinkering with. The little alien, you know, buggy things that you can throw out as a kind of living grenade, but if they don't find a target, they'll come back and knack to you. Like, that, that was ridiculously advanced for, what was it, 96, 97? That's a crazy thing. The weird hornet gun that spits out hornets and will slowly recharge. So you have infinite ammo, but it'll only charge up to eight, and you've got to fi- and then you can fire those eight off and wait for it to rebound. I've never seen anything like that in a game. I th- they're still incredibly satisfying guns. And really meaningfully different. There's lots of them, but they're all used in really different ways. Um, I, yeah, I think game even allowing for the crappy, sorry, the 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 sort of slithery physics. Uh, certainly, as a kind of first-person shooter developer, looking at Half-Life One's weapons, it's like wow, those are those are beautifully tuned. Really different. Just by looking at them in first person, or you see them the model in third person, you can tell exactly what they do. Which is difficult for alien weapons. Um, when we'd made uh, Enemy Territory Quake Wars and I was trying to con- do concept briefs for the Strog weapons, we came up with a list of things like, you know, it mustn't, it mustn't look cooler upside down. It mustn't look like a train or a spaceship. Um, and the problem, the thing that a lot of developers uh, fall into is they make these things that look really awesome in profile, but are indistinguishable in first person, which is where you spend most of your time looking at them, in a, obviously, in a first person shooter. Um, yeah, even being that early, Half-Life 1 is a masterclass in weapon design. Really worth checking out. Also, just lots of smart things, like the camo pattern on the Marines, who are, you know, your main enemies for great big chunks of it. You can't actually give them camouflage, because then you wouldn't be able to see them. So they really um, exaggerate the size of the pattern, so actually it makes them more obvious. So it looks like they're wearing um, uh, camouflage uniforms, but actually it makes them stand out against the environment it's really it's just full of really smart little choices like that mm. um what about the aspects that you didn't like about it i mean like you you tweeted earlier today before we started recording about some of the aspects that you didn't like it's true there are some, i mean there are just some terrible puzzles <laughs> <laughs> the tank the tanks there's a there's there's the m1 abrams and the m2 bradley and it's just trial and error like oh is this going to blow them up oh i'm supposed to be aiming for the turret on the bradley but i can use anything against that it, it's just not very clear um you know we've had lots more experience in game design since then of like well here's how to for example i don't know what are the not the brutes who are the the huge great orange in halo they're mm. the big guys with the shields and the fuel rod guns oh like, God. And there's gaps in the armor, so you can see the flesh, so you know, oh, I get it, I have to get behind them, and then I, I can shoot them where there's no armor. 
Mm. Or the jackals with the energy shield, and there's a little notch in the shield, and you can snipe them through the you know the, the little hole. Like that's really smart, uh, you know, enemy design. It's not all of the same standard in Half Life, but it does so much, and it was such early days for the industry. I find it very difficult to hold that, you know, hold it against it. As a, as a designer, um, like, what would you tweak? What design choices would you change or tweak about the game? Oh, get rid of all the first-person platform jumping. <laughs> um, I do wonder, because I, 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 I do feel very much the constraints of my technical knowledge, because I'm not really an engine guy, and I can't code, and I don't, you know, the, I, I know how the physics feel to me, but I, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm particularly knowledgeable in how to tweak that stuff. Compared to the precision of the movement in Quake, or Quake 3, for instance, rather than the rewritten Quake 2 engine, I, I, wonder, I wonder if... It just mainly because it's because I'm just terrible at trick jumping, and I've never been any good at it at that kind of movement. I'm still awful, awful at crouch jumps in every game. They just bring me out in sweat and hives. I am terrible at them, and I blame Half Life very much for that. <laughs> That's entirely Half Life's fault. There's a horror. There's that bit where oh, sorry, you played it. There's there's a bit where you've got to make a huge jump across an empty uh, lift shaft to a ladder, and that took me. Days. It took me bloody days, and I used to get so tense. Like, oh, okay, what do I? I'm going to forward and then jump and then crouch and and, and just and just plunge to my doom every single time. Um, yeah, I'll definitely blame Half Life for that. I, I, I if I've had a, an easier introduction to crouch jumping, I could probably be better at it now. Mm. Um, so I normally ask this question in mind with at least three more three or more games in the series but of course mm. there's only been you know two full Half-Life games but I'm going to ask this question now it's with the caveat that Half-Life 2 episodes are playable standalone yeah. ha internet you can't catch me for that <laughs> what is your top three Half-Life games first place has got to be Half-Life 1 mm-hmm. uh, so wait, what are we talking like the episodes the, the, was it, wasn't it the Lost Coast no, I've got that wrong. It is black, the black. Oh lord, Half Life One, then Half Life Two, then oh, hang on, there's the, 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 the but then there's opposing forces and Blue Shift, isn't there? Uh, but those are but those aren't standalone, are they? There was one. Hang on, wasn't the the Dreamcast one? Was I think the Dreamcast Blue Shift scoop? Yeah, it was. I'm gonna have that as my third. <laughs> there was a ter- there was a weird period when. Um, Sega were trying to get stuff. Oh, the Dreamcast! What a weird! It was so far ahead of its time, but it was just hopeless. They had, they had Virtua Tennis, the best tennis game ever, but it wasn't tied into any like player or tournament. They sponsored Arsenal football team, and I can't remember which uh, Spanish team as well. But they didn't have a football game. It was. <laughs> I think it was Villarreal, wasn't it? I think it was. I think you're right. Yeah, good, good, good footy knowledge there. Um, they had these amazing, you know, like they were trying. They were, they were so far ahead. I'm Fantasy Star Online. I bought a, 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 a Dreamcast keyboard to play Fantasy Star on, but it was all narrowband. Like that's a phrase that people think I've made up because they, they only know broadband. Trying to do that through a dial-up modem that wasn't ADSL, it was a nightmare. <laughs> it was an absolute nightmare. But and for and they ported Quake Three Arena to Dreamcast uh, and trying to play it using that controller when you can't turn around very fast. I mean, Halo solved that problem brilliantly 
by just making it low gravity. So you couldn't turn around very fast. Mm. So the box didn't have to render. You know, on a PC, when you you can when you can just keep on adding more RAM and huge graphic card, you can turn around 180 degrees really fast, and it and it will render the environment. Halo came up with a really smart way to avoid having to render too much environment too fast. That was a that was another stroke of design genius. Um, but yeah, that, they put Quake Three Arena on there, and then some PC hackers worked out how to le- how to hack their way into the walls, the walls garden servers, and just massacred every, all the Dreamcast players. <laughs> it was just, it was absolutely brutal. There were these poor people getting headshot with railguns. Just going, what? I've I've had one frame of the game render so far, and I'm already dead. <laughs> um, so yeah, top three: Half Life One, Half Life Two, and then Blue Shift on Dreamcast, which is an amazing loophole to go for. Thank, thank you, kindly. <laughs> <laughs> Honourable mentions, finally, we can finally get off Half-Life now, um, because, oh god, we've been talking about Half-Life for such a long time, okay. so, honourable mentions, like, go for it. Oh, other games of that era and epoch that were big influences, or just favourite things? Favourite games, so honourable um, mentions... Deus Ex was a huge deal, that, that was an annoying, because it was so smart, it was so... Well written. I remember. Oh, look, they've talked about the Illuminati. Oh, okay. Well, I think I think you'll find a Mr. Computer game that I know a little bit about that. Oh, wow. This game knows more about the Illuminati than I do. Oh, <laughs> and the notion that there wasn't. You know, we're so key to going. There's a way to beat the game. There is this one way. You know, you're trying to. You're kind of interrogating the game to give the question to, to answer the question. How do I beat you? And you find this optimal path and you do it. And the notion that at the end of the game, it just asked you what you believed. Like no, how do you think the future should go? Because that's how it's going to be. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell you as a designer this way is right. It's about your beliefs. And I'd never been asked that by a game before. It really floored me. I thought I'd got the. I, I thought I just kind of misconstrued it or misconceived it because it just my ethical beliefs had never come up, been questioned in a game before. Um, that was amazing. I'll also put a word in for a quite a forgotten game now called Blood. Made by Monolith, who made, and also they also made the brilliant No One Lives Forever. There was Nolf One and Two, which are just still two of the funniest games ever made. Oh, I wish they'd make another Nolf. <laughs> so good, but um, yeah, the first shooter I played any. Oh, the first. Hang on, is that true? Single player. Sh- oh no, no, no. There, okay, there was there was uh, Doom, uh, Wolfenstein 3D, and then Doom. But the third game I spent lots of time with was Blood, which was a weird kind of comic whole. Uh, horror shooter and it's really something I mean, this was before mice by the way I was doing this all with uh, page up page down to aim um, and I played that I was I was living abroad at the time I played that on a friend's PC and that was kind of amazed by that didn't play Tomb Raider I just found that terrifyingly difficult and I, could, I just kept on falling off ledges and it was ter- it annoyed me and I, I bought it and then was playing it on my dad's laptop just before I was playing um, Half-Life and the music in some of the levels was really scary. Oh, by the way, designers, check out Blood. It's got the best explosives mechanic in any game. They've got different kinds of dynamites you can use as grenades, and it's still just unparalleled. It's so good. I'd love to get Blood-style dynamites or grenade types into a game. It was so flexible. It was perfect. 
Um, and they had brilliant weapons like a voodoo doll. So it was just a little doll with a pin in it. And you'd put your crosshairs on the enemy, even if it was through a window, and just stab the doll with the needle and it would do the damage to the enemy. Um, but if, you, if it died, any extra damage, if you carried on doing it, you'd take the damage. It was so smart. But yeah, there was a couple of levels were genuinely really quite scary because it had really atmospheric music. And it took me a while. By accident, I realised that it was just playing the music off the game CD. So I just stuck on the Fat Boy Slim album instead. <laughs> the, whole thing, the whole thing became a lot jollier. <laughs> oh boy. Um, any others? Uh, I played a harpoon there's a very hardcore uh naval and air warfare sim uh oh yeah close combat these are games i I played a lot uh top down 2d real-time world war ii squad combat game uh they were amazing made by atomic games uh, who then had uh, uh, I was still going but they had that rather unfortunate thing with Seven Days in Fallujah which was going to be this and I, re- I remember playing these World War II games being really disturbed by how accurate they were as documentaries like there was a real faith in the war game as a documentary medium and you know they had actual soldier names as the little individual soldier you know each soldier had their own names the audio was amazing it's still they're really atmospheric games um, you know, graphically pretty crude because it's all two top-down 2D sprites. Um, but I remember hearing about Seven Days in Fallujah and going, oh, of course, they, they, really, they really have a confidence, that studio, that they can tell a story about warfare using games. And it was the idea of the thing that people... I mean, I don't think anyone played the game and found it. It's just the notion that you could play a game about a conflict that recent and that it wouldn't be a travesty. Just people couldn't accept that. No one played the game. No one saw it. And um, from what I can tell, it was the publisher just saying, look, I really believe in the product, but it's going to be impossible to sell this game. We just, we just can't do it. Um, so kind of kudos to Atomic for having that faith in games as an art form and as a narrative medium. But it's still just so problematic. We're still, you know, it's kind of misguided, but it's, it's not without cause that people are suspicious about computer games as a medium to tell genuine truths and genuine stories about complex and difficult subjects um but yeah close combat are very very respectful um world war Two. uh the first one was was the second one the first one was d-day and the second one was the, 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 the operation market garden and then the third one was the eastern front um they're really worth checking out someone's got the rights and has repackaged them as something else but those were major major games that was uh i spent a lot of time playing those So 
let, we've touched upon other people's work for best part of nearly two hours, so why don't we touch upon the kind of work that you're doing, more specifically, oh yeah, specifically Dirty Bomb. Oh, um, so, um, for those who don't know about Dirty Bomb, um, give the elevator pitch. Oh. Um, Dirty Bomb is a new, upcoming, free-to-play, multiplayer first-person shooter, so it's very much in the uh, tradition of the previous games we've done, like Wolfenstein Enemy Territory or Enemy Territory Quake Wars, or kind of Brink, in fact, as well. But yeah, taking, you know, we've made mis- we made mistakes with all of those games, which we're trying to fix. Um, and also, no one's... I mean, maybe it's unfair to say it, but, I mean, I think there's definitely a gap just in terms of the balance of speed and lethality and how much movement versus shooting you do. We think there's a big gap in... The, the market. There are some fantastic first-person sh- multiplayer first-person shooters. I mean, you know, Battlefield's great. Call of Duty's great. But they're... And for a while it seemed like they were competing head-to-head, but they've kind of... They're doing different things now. Um, and I think that's that's good. It's a really good time to be a gamer. <laughs> they're like, you know, it, it's great that... Because it seemed for a while that everyone was going to make... They're trying to make the perfect shooter rather than their own shooter. Um, so all the games are trying to be each other, and it's nice to see people trying to identify different flavours or paces. So we've got our special our special secret sauce, which is either class-based or kind of multi-character dynamic objective. So it's not just death deathmatch or, or team deathmatch. Um, you're trying to do objectives. Maybe you're trying to escort a vehicle through a map. And this is very much what we're doing with Dirty Bomb. It's set in a, a near-future abandoned London, and you play mercenaries who have to either save data or, or extract it or destroy it. or um, And it's all about depth of team play. It's all about learning the map, learning all the characters, learning all their abilities. Uh, and it's free to play. So you can, when we release it fully on Steam, you can check it out for no cost whatsoever. Hey, all about the free games. <laughs> um, this may be a... Ca- I was kind of reluctant in saying this, but the, the fact you mentioned Brink kind of makes yes. it less harsh, perhaps. Um, um, the first impression I got of Dirty Bomb was that it was basically Brink in London. We're at this stage with first-person shoot, multiplayer first-person shooters where you've got any colour whatsoever in them. Just go, well, I mean, that's Brink, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're right, we are, we are not a saturated khaki shooter. Um, it's, I... It's weird because when Brink first came out, people, everyone was saying, oh, well, I mean, that's TF2. It's like, well, yeah, you're right. We don't look like Call of Duty either, but it doesn't look anything like TF2. Um, not, that, not that TF2 isn't brilliant. I mean, that, oh. that, that for us is the challenge is why on earth would you not play Counter-Strike or Team Fortress 2 like, instead of whatever else we're pitching? We've got to come up with a really strong bid for players' attentions. We've got to give them really good reasons why there's something that we can give them from this game with, with Dirty Bomb that they can't get from these other, other games. So it's kind of it's good to have competition that fierce because you know TF2, Counter Strike, they're not bad games. <laughs> no, really not. no, and nor a Call of Duty or or or, or um, uh, uh, Battlefield. These are great, great games. Um, Brink, we did it. We tried to innovate on every front. We made some, and also it, it shipped buggy. It was it was just unforgivable. We're still trying to. We I, I think we as a studio have you know. Uh, it's incumbent on us to win back people's trust by by really delivering on what we're promising because we frankly failed to do that in the i mean by you know by the time people who played the patched version of the game went oh this is all right this isn't you know quite a lot of them liked it but that first week was just 
it was just so punishing for it, all concerned. It was just our first lasting impression. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, we got it wrong. Mm. Uh, we have made lots of mistakes. We're trying to do better. Mm. Um, so I, I, t- I tell you what, the thing about if you don't like Dirty Bomb, we'll give you your no money back. How about that? <laughs> that, that would be a good guarantee. Um, you can not take that to the bank. <laughs> um, which kind of uh, segues nicely into the lessons kind of learned from Brink. But not, not, not just Brink, but other FPSs since the release of Brink. Because obviously... Call of Duty's kind of moved on in a big way because it's not just oh Modern Warfare sixty five yeah. or or since Battlefield three which everyone got their knickers in a twist for admittedly it's changed so much I mean for a start the notion I mean when I when I when I were a lad when I started playing first person shooters like you couldn't play them on consoles I mean there was time splitters I suppose on Goldeneye but. Or Halo. Well, well, no, that's the thing. It's, it's, I remember when Halo came in. And Halo, let's not forget, started off as a PC RTS. It was a Mac you... RTS, actually, I just remembered. Ah, oh, God, that's right, that's right, yeah, sorry. Because um, uh, that's what Bungie did. No, yeah. that that, that, that. Um, so having, and also, as it became cheaper and cheaper, and so many people's formative memory of the first time they played a multiplayer shooter was playing... Halo on a on an Xbox in a dorm room, hmm. as opposed to a PC on a LAN or in you know at someone's work machine. They stayed late and got pizzas and turned it into a kind of secret pirate LAN, um, and that changed everything because you've got you had shooters that had to work on consoles, uh, and consoles have you know some of them need, require auto aim and things like that. So I think it's taken a while. You know, we're trying to come up with a shooter to do all of them, or do you come up with a, a separate version for each one? I think it's taken a while for that all to, f- to kind of shake down and filter out. So it's kind of a, a relief to us to, you know, just be making a, uh, a sorry, great, great swearing in the office behind me, <laughs> um, uh, to be making a game that's PC only. So we can really focus on, right, we're looking for this profile of player. Uh, it, it, it's, it's exactly this base of gameplay. We're not trying to make it cross-platform. We're not trying to make it work on all these different machines using the same, you know, the, the, the same engine. Um, and we're not trying to make it work for both kind of maybe more general console players and really hardcore PC players. We can be a lot more selective in who we're making the game for. Um, so yeah, Dirty Bomb, it's in closed beta right now. That's right, yeah. We, uh, we'll hopefully have an announcement about that fairly soon, about opening that up um yeah i'm really because we had it we, we had a closed beta season on steam that was, it was just fascinating it was so interesting to watch people playing the game other than the vips who've been helping us alpha test it already and it's really rewarding just to get on with you know i'll get on serve with a bunch of strangers and then you know you go from being one of the hundred top players in the world of this game that's not out yet to kind of like oh I suck I'm terrible <laughs> it's like hang on these guys have been playing this game for like you know four days and they're already level five. Oh, they're all better than me this is embarrassing but it's it was really it's so rewarding when you first get to play the game with people who you haven't made the game with you know directly you're just not in the same building as you uh, so that's you know selfishly personally a lot of fun for me uh, I just can't wait to get it out and see what people make of it. You know, we learned a huge amount. And, and also just scaling and load testing and player matching. You just can't emulate that stuff. You can't, or, or, or simulate it rather. You've just got to put it out on the real world, on the real internet. 
and have real people playing it on their machines. Um, maybe they've updated their graphics drivers in the last three years. Maybe not. Who knows what combination of hardware they've got. You've, you've just got to get that data from the real world. You can't, you know, there's only so much you can solve in theory, you know, in the studio just by thinking about it. You've just got to get it out there and get people playing it. Absolutely. So it's definitely at, at coming out this year. Oh, yeah. Stern on Twitter, and eventually I'll get www.bongoludo.com up and running, wherein I rant about things like what I don't like about Prometheus. And uh, oh, it's a shit. Uh, no, no, don't get me started. Don't get me started on that. But yeah, generally I am on uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Ed Stern. Um, I uh, ask me questions. I may even answer them. Thanks for listening to my favourite game, and with belated apologies to Ed Stern's girlfriend. Next week, Julie Horup on The Binding of Isaac. Until next week, bye bye.